I don't have any like cool music. I'm gonna have to like uh I need to like come up with some really cool like do 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 Or maybe I can get a buddy to make a beat. I don't know. I need to make this cooler. Cause like the lightning round's sick, but I have no way to make it feel sick when people are listening. I do, man. <laughs> hey, yo, hear it back in the editing process. It's going to be dope. All right. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try to come up with something. Welcome to the EduPunks Podcast. I am your host, Craig Bideman. Hope you're all doing well this week. I uh, got a lot of great responses from the last like two or three podcasts. Folks are really starting to catch on with, uh, with the conversations I'm having with people, which I really enjoy. I love getting that feedback. I'd love if that feedback got thrown into some reviews and some rates on the iTunes store. That'd be pretty sick. Maybe even subscribe. Take your friend's phone and subscribe to the to the podcast. Like play little tricks on them. It'll be really fun. Uh, if you tell me that you did that to someone, maybe I'll send you like a little gift or something. I'm trying to uh, get as many followers as possible to these conversations in the most sheepish ways possible because that's as punk as I can get right now. Uh, just going off the top of my head. Uh, today I'm chatting with Josh Odom who is a current graduate student at UMass Amherst, where I did my grad school uh, work. Josh was also a student that I interacted with a lot while I was there for graduate school. He was also the student trustee for the university uh, this past year, I believe. And he owns a clothing company called Free Negro University. We're going to hear all about Josh's experiences in college, uh, how he navigates the world as a a young black man, and why he created this organization uh, called Free Negro University and all the great stories behind that. Later, you're going to hear some music from Counterintuitive Records. Uh, They're a Massachusetts-based DIY record label that uh, is putting out a lot of great bands right now, and I cannot wait to share more about them a little bit later. We also have a really cool vinyl sponsor now that I'm going to share a little bit about a little bit later as well. Get excited for that. And now uh, I'm going to get to this conversation with Josh. Uh, We actually get into a lot of stuff in this conversation, some things that I wish we could have explored a little bit more. We even tease something that could probably be a whole other podcast conversation uh, in the future. So if you enjoy this conversation, there might actually be another one, perhaps in the not-so-distant future. I love talking to Josh. He has a great head on his shoulders. You'll hear that this entire conversation. Uh, But yeah, let's get to it. All right, I am sitting here uh, virtually with Josh Odom. Uh, who? How you doing, Josh? Good, good. How you doing, Greg? I'm doing well. Where are you right now? I am on campus right now, UMass. We are um, in the middle of our 
uh, program. We're just working on taking classes, getting ready for this master's program. So I got one day to just kind of be. And so I'm taking every advantage of it. But I'm glad to be talking to you, man. Hey, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that you're taking some time out of uh, starting your master's degree to just chat with me for, for a little bit. Uh, I did my master's degree at UMass Amherst, which is where we met. Okay. <laughs> um, so I do know a little bit about you. Uh, folks probably listening might not know anything about you. So tell folks a little bit about who you are, what you do, where you come from, and how you got here. Sure, sure. So um, long and short of it, again, my name is Josh Odom. I am the founder of Free Negro University, Liberation of Death. Um, I we actually met uh, when I was a first year on uh, on campus. I recently graduated with my degree in political science, um, coming back for my uh, master's degree in labor studies. Um, and yeah, this and well, I'm I'm coming by way of Brooklyn, New York. Um, it's definitely an interesting change being Amherst from Brooklyn. Uh, oh, I bet. <laughs> you used to it after you know about four years or so. So, it's um it's definitely like you know a second home now. I have a lot of um, my networks here, a lot of my people that really looked out for me uh, throughout the four years, and they've really encouraged me to do a lot of things um, and develop my voice and do things for the culture and for the community. And I really appreciate, you know, meeting folks like you, meeting folks like, you know, a lot of my mentors and mentors and friends. And we're just going to keep pushing, you know. That's all we can do. I mean, when we first met, it was your first year? For some reason, I thought it was your second. I, you, I think you're right. I think it was your first year. I think we, I think we met, like, kind of uh, superficially my first year, but then I actually remember having, like, a deeper conversation myself. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Um, so when we met, I was in my master's degree for higher education administration, which is basically working with college students, helping them find their voice. But when I met you, you already had it. Like you, <laughs> you, were, you were good to go. So I was like, I, have no, I, I honestly don't know what I can do to offer this guy, but I'm going to listen because he's got some good shit to say. Um, so how did you find that voice so early in your life? Was it just growing up in Brooklyn? Uh, was it kind of a, a just college had impacted you that much uh, immediately? Or where did you come across that voice? Um, I think that it was um, a combination of things. I think the first thing I need to um, attribute it to is, you know, my parents and my family. They, a lot of... Um, times I coming up I really had a problem um expressing myself when especially when things bothered me and it had a lot of um negative results so um since then um even going into high school you know I was really adamant to take my mother's advice particularly say look if you see something that's bothering you you need to then you need to say something and you can't just hold that in you need to fix it and you need to do whatever you need to do in order to be that uh that change agent so it kind of started in high school um you know really trying to find every and any opportunity to develop myself as you know a thinker as a person as a leader as just as a human being um doing debate doing um theater doing um uh a multitude of different activities so i think it's kind of started there and um it kind of everything kind of started to get set 
um, the summer before I got to UMass, I was interning with an organization called Harlem Mother Save, Save being an acronym for Stop Another Violent End. It was an organization that was founded by um, by uh, black women who have who lost children to gun violence in the city, in New York City. And it was there that I kind of saw what um, community grassroots organizing looked like um, in terms of really shaping uh, policy, working with different constituency groups, working with different um, political actors, if you will, all throughout the city and making things happen. So it was that experience that you know set the foundation for me coming to UMass and really understanding what I wanted to do, understanding what I needed to do, and just setting forth on that journey. That's awesome, man. And I, uh, while you're while you're saying that, I just quickly went to Harlem Mothers uh, Serve just so I could um, save. And it looks like they're still real active. Yep, very much so. Yep. That's awesome. That that must have been a really cool experience. How did you get a How did you get a hold of uh, working uh, doing some work with them? So um, I met them at a um, at a. A scholarship uh, benefit. I actually met um, uh, in well, high school. In high school, yes. I, in I, high school. I, I um, so a little bit, a little bit of backstories. My father was is a, was a cop for um, about twenty six oh. years, and, and you see the plot thickens, right? <laughs> you, yeah. You know, no, you, I, was, I was. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. No, I, you know, a lot of folks when I say, you know, my dad is a cop. Like, How the fuck is your dad? A, oh, excuse me. <laughs> I don't want to curse, man. How the oh, it's okay. Don't I, worry about that. <laughs> Yeah, how is your dad a cop and you're involved in Black Lives Matter? So like we always we always have a good, you know, laugh about that when we're um back in the holidays. But anyway, so um we were at a I, I don't know how you're gonna keep making that an aside because that could be a whole episode in and of itself. <laughs> oh yeah, definitely. we can definitely talk about that. Because um, like my brother my brother's a cop and we have a lot of those conversations too so it's it's pretty interesting it's def- it definitely gets to be interesting around like the holidays when everybody's oh. back oh tell me about this protest that you went to i was like oh, all right <laughs> i can do i can do it if you want me to i'm not going to lie to you so it's, <laughs> it's definitely interesting so um so we got so we got this so i got this scholarship and um it was through um um an organization of black law Enforcement uh, officials, and um, it just so happened that the, um, the person who founded the organization, who was running the organization, her name is Jackie Rowe Adams. She was getting an award as well, so we had to talk in, and you know, we had a conversation. I actually met her husband before I met her, so we all got a chance to talk and sit down and converse. And you know, one thing led to another, and they said that you know, when you finish school, you know, definitely come back, to come by to Harlem, and we want to work with you. Um, and it was just great. It was, um, it was something that really changed my life. I know that we had, um, we organized a rally cause that was a little bit after, um, uh, Trayvon Martin was killed and just to see this woman do so much in the face of, um, such extraordinary tragedy. I think she lost two sons, I believe to gun violence. It just was a testament. It's like, like I have no excuse anymore. Um, I really need to do what I need to do and continue um, building, continue um, sharpening my skill sets in order to do this work as well. I think it's a it's a good testament to any 
any of us who've gone through any form of like trauma or know people who have to see them kind of use that experience to support their communities or really develop something beautiful out of it. Mm -hmm. And especially with um, the amount of police violence uh, against uh black individuals over the last few years or you could say all of history um <laughs> uh it it is completely inspiring to see folks who take that trauma and create something beautiful out of it mm, mm, um, absolutely absolutely um it, it was it was interesting because um it was it was an interesting time because um her organization really was devoted to just um, gun violence in general, so not just police violence. So um, it was more so like you know somebody was you know, sh- you know shot and killed um, in their own community by somebody that looked like them, and it was it was interesting for me. And I think this was where um, a lot of the nuance came in, and I had to have a lot of um, internal conversations with myself, is because uh, I remember that was around the t- well, that was um, during the time. Um, when uh, Trayvon, Trayvon was killed, and I remember we, there was a lot of conversations going on between um, community members, like, you know, why are we marching for X person when X person was killed and nobody said anything? And, like, we, we, that, and again, like, it kind of went back to the whole, like, Black Lives Matter versus All Lives Matter debate. Um, and it was, it was frustrating and it was difficult because we had to really... Um, we had to really navigate a lot of tough conversations around like violence and trauma and like why, you know, police violence is one thing. And like, you know, I even hate to say like, but black on black crime is another thing. And like a lot of those things were incredibly taxing and caused a lot of people to rethink their place in the organization. Um, But we, we went through it and we went through it together and there was a lot of growth um, to happen there was a lot of growth that happened, um, myself included. I learned, I had to learn, I learned, I had to learn a lot of things, and I had really had to question a lot of things that I've been taught um, as a result. So, you know, I, I don't want to keep rambling, but it was. Oh I, no, you're good. Yeah. Do I, you think? I no, because this is this is intriguing to me. Do you do you think some of that unlearning is? And I might even already know the answer to this. Some of that unlearning you had to do is what really made you an even stronger voice in your community. Well, I was. I, I think so. I think that it was something that was incredibly painful for me to go through um, on many levels. And I think anybody who has had to confront a truth that they that, uh, something that they thought was the truth and then had to really rethink their position. Like that is a painful process. Yeah. Uh, So a lot of that, I I wouldn't say that it made me, I wouldn't say that it made me somehow like unique or whatever. And I made my voice so special, but I Mm -hmm. think this allowed me to then add more of a nuance to my analysis. And it allowed me to like further question things and go deeper into myself about others issues and other topics that I thought were just so cut and dry. You know what I mean? Oh, for sure. And I think that nuance is really important because I I had one of these unlearning experiences when I went into college. And granted, I'm a dude that passes for uh, being white. I'm half Mexican. A lot of folks 
don't or don't know or can't tell that. But um, so I don't really have a racial component of unlearning or experiencing the world. Um, mine more came with my faith. Mm. And I because I grew up in a very like religious, like Christian religious home. And um, a lot of my experiences in college were just like question that a little bit. And I was like, oh, I can. Huh. Right. I didn't know I could do that. So the more I chipped away and the more I started to learn and unlearn and educate myself, I started to develop that nuance and I've kind of created whatever I believe today. I'm not really going to get into it, but mm-hmm. I feel like that has made, and I can agree that some of when, when you're confronted with, oh, this might not be true. Oh, like your brain hurts for a little bit right. because then you question everything. Mm-hmm. Like, was anything true? <laughs> was any of that real? <laughs> Absolutely. Goodness. Absolutely. Now, coming from Brooklyn to the very, very white Amherst, mm-hmm. um, do you feel like you cultivated a, a good community in Amherst? What was your experience like being there? I know that there was there during your time there, there was a lot going on social justice wise, racial wise, um, even in my time there. Um, and you're staying there for grad school, so you must have something to stay for. Yeah. So well, I mean, explain to me a little bit of that, that stuff. Absolutely. Well, like the part of, well, a part of the reason why I'm staying for grad school is that it's, it's free. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you know, give a brother an assistant shit. I was like, I can do this. I mm-hmm. think I can. Um, but yes. So to the question of your, um, to your question about community, um, a lot of people, a lot of black folk have been here for, for a long time, right? And I know a lot of people who are or were in a position where I was, like coming from like a very um, black neighborhood, a very um, multicultural uh, community, and coming here, it's it's almost antithetical. Um, and a lot of folks saw that, and you know, they you know they said they saw me, they saw me doing my thing, and they saw not not just me, they saw like a lot of us, you know, a lot of my you know our, my friends and folks that I ran with, you know, they saw us doing our thing, trying to be uh, change agents, and they took us under their wing, if you will. So you know, I definitely cultivated um, a network of folks that looked out for me, um, more so black women than anybody else that you know looked out for me, and they they were all, you know, concerned about my academics first and foremost, but they said, like, you know, how are you doing? You know, have you had some food that's not, like, you know, cafeteria food? Like, you want some, like, real home cooking with seasoning and stuff like that? You know, it, it was something that I can't ever thank them for because it made this experience that much easier. And, and, and this experience was hard on so many levels. And um, if it wasn't for them, I really just would have transferred and went back to New York. Um, yeah. Hmm. Now, during your time, did you feel like you had any sort of experiences, even as you were becoming more um, vocal on campus? Did you have any times where you felt like you were that like, kind of being affronted by any other students or did you feel pretty comfortable uh, experiencing the campus there? So there was so that, that, that we can take that question in uh many different levels. Um, yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, 
the biggest affront is being like one black student or you know one student of color and like a lecture hall of 300s like that is an affront just in and of itself like you don't have to be you know calling me you know you know n-word or anything like that that just that experience and that visual alone is just very damaging um so i had a lot of that um and there also were students that like you know took it a step further and said like you know we need to then like put this like uppity black kid back in his place um which is which is also like this is around the time where i met you where you know like somebody wrote nigger on my door and like that was like my mom was getting ready like no like you're you know you're coming back home like you're transferring um, like we need to then look into like an emergency transfer. I'm like, I'm not going anywhere, and I'm not saying this to be, <laughs> I'm and I, I'm not saying this to be like macho or anything like that. I'm not saying this to be, you know, to be all brave and whatnot. But it's it's just the idea of like, so I'm gonna go back and go where? Like, there's no place that I can run to. There's no place that I could I can um, take refuge in where anti-blackness isn't going to permeate it. So it just so happened that it, it took place in Amherst, but it would have happened in New York too. It would have happened anywhere, and it forced me to then have that realization. It's like, you know, of course, you know, we know about anti-black racism and things of that nature. And I was very aware of this um, when it happened, but it kind of, it definitely erased any and all doubt that I may have had in any like crevice of my mind. Like, no, this is your reality. And this is going to be your reality anywhere that you may go. And you need to then be able to, fight in a way that is is going to preserve you that is going to help you navigate this space and help you get to the end goal but also you know helps other folks who may come after you and i think because i i remember experiencing what you were going through and recognizing that you were you it almost to a degree seemed like you were taking some of it in stride to where, God, I was like, God, he must just feel this every day. That, like, this isn't that big of a deal to a certain degree. Because, like, it could happen any day. It could happen anywhere and it could happen to anyone. Just because you you can't handle the color you were born. Right. And I I don't experience that. Like, that's not something I experience. The only thing that I get consistently is uh like homophobic slurs thrown at me which happened a couple times when i was at amherst um and and funny it happened three three times i can count all three times i was wearing pink Mm. and it was about wearing pink Mm. it Mm -hmm. made no sense to me right and then and then these and then these vineyard vines dudes are wearing like pink polos like it's nothing and i'm like come on yeah but I, I, and I, that, that's really the thing is like, you know, this is something that extends to, you know, us, but it doesn't extend to their bodies. It's like, you know, when when they do it, it's not seen as an attack on their masculinity. But when you do, no. then it's like, then it's a problem. And to go back to what you were talking about in terms of, yeah, and, and I don't want to, I don't want to make anybody, I don't want to try to, um, to fool anybody that may be listening, but like, no, that, that, that experiencing was like incredibly traumatizing. Okay. It just so happened okay. that like, I, again, I, I just so happened to be in a position where I, I had people to like, to help me. And I had people to, um, 
to like to counsel me and things of that nature. Um, but yeah, I, I don't want to make it seem that I was like, oh yeah, fuck it. Like, yes. I, <laughs> and like, I, I do understand that like, yes, like this is something that like, I, I probably would have had a very different reaction had that not happened to me before. But like, yeah, like, no, I'm from New York. Like I've been stopped on the block all the time. Like I've been, like, the first time I got stopped was when I was like 11 and they mistaken for like a 22 year old. So I'm oh like, my God. well, this is, this is like, yo, this is, is anything new, but that doesn't mean that it's, it's any less um any less you know uh, uh powerful impactful um and i think the one one thing that i also am looking back on i i you know i am in a different place now than i was then i think that a lot of times um folks want to then extend like this idea of like a singular um charismatic black male leader onto whatever kind of a thing they want to do and that is what um, happened to me and it really it really kind of um, it really highlighted where um, where I was at in terms of I didn't really recognize it in terms of like no like I'm not this isn't I'm not this isn't something that I am supposed to be exalted for you know what I'm talking about like this is not something that I'm supposed to be revered for like let's not act as if like you know josh is just so special because like he's like a good talker and he can write pretty well like this isn't something that like this isn't something that we should be the point i'm trying to make is like you know there was a lot of unlearning that we had to do in terms of you know understanding that like well no it's not josh and everybody else like it just so happens that this this just so happened this happened to me but this doesn't make me special and this doesn't make me qualified to, you know, lead like whatever kind of movement y'all are thinking about doing. And we, sh- we should also be really questioning why we we want to have when I say we I mean, like a, a lot of black men um, kind of have this mentality um, that I've seen or a lot of black men who I was interacting with have this mentality Um why do we all, why are you all so pressed on having like a black man at the front? You know what I'm saying? Like, why are you so adamant on having like a black man at the top dictating orders down the chain of command? Like, we need to think, rethink our leadership strategies and we need to rethink the way that we are organizing. And I think because this took place almost um, at the same time, like Black Lives Matter was really becoming uh, a part of the national discourse a lot of my friends were um engaging in conversations with themselves around like well no i, I don't need to, we, we don't need to have like this whole like willis martin and malcolm leading and everybody else is on the bottom more so everybody else meaning black women are at the bottom taking orders we need to think about a new way to have um each other's back we need to rethink new ways of engaging in uh movement work that isn't so hierarchical yeah i mean with with all movements and with all like forms of protest it has to evolve with the times as well so changing up like the one thing that you have to give credit for in today's society is the black lives matter movement has been taking advantage of social media better than any other organization i or any any group of people um and that's that's incredible to see absolutely 
Okay, we're going to take our first uh, little ad break here. I'm going to talk to you about a wonderful group of folks that are putting out some vinyl stuff. I love vinyl. I'm a big vinyl record collector. Uh, I have a whole bunch in our apartment. I'm actually selling a whole bunch because I feel like I need to make some room. And, you know, it's an expensive hobby. But what I love about this service, Table Turned, is that it is very inexpensive to start or add to your collection. Table Turned is a DIY Record of the Month Club. There are a lot of Record of the Month Clubs out there. I get that. There are a lot. Record collectors, a lot of my friends on the vinyl Instagram community, they all subscribe to a bunch of them. This is the only one I subscribe to. Uh, I just got my first uh, package from them this month. I subscribed to their post-rock genre. I got a copy of an early Do May Say Think record. It is incredible, incredible quality. They send you a whole bunch of other stuff with it. It's really great. So for their service, you're actually able to pick a genre. Like I said, I do post-rock. They also have pop punk, emo, Americana punk, and noise rock. So there are a lot of great different genre styles. If that's what you're trying to get into, you're able to subscribe today until August 31st. You you can subscribe for an entire year for $160. That's super cheap. Uh, You're also able to subscribe month to month for $15 a month, which is the option that I do because it's a little bit easier for my budget. Uh, But after August 31st, it only goes up to $175. So you're actually saving an entire month if you subscribe before August 31st. That's why I'm getting this out to you right now. You got a whole month, over a month to subscribe. You can get this. This is great. They'll send you a record every month. You don't even have to think about it. And shipping's free. That's so incredible. So subscribe to Table Turned. They're great folks. They are at... Table dash turned, T U R N E D dot com, table turned dot com. There's a dash between table and turned, uh, and you can sign up there. Super easy to do. And it's also run by a dude who's an educator, who's a high school teacher. That's so kick ass. That's such a great connection for this community. And I didn't even know that happened until we started talking about uh, advertising on the podcast. So that's super sick. All right, sign up. Get some cheap records, listen to great music, support uh, what was once a dead format and is now thriving and outselling CDs. Hell yeah. All right, let's get back to the conversation with Josh, where we talk about more stuff, more good stuff. Here we go. Shifting gears just a little bit, uh, you started Free Negro University uh, a year ago, a couple years ago? It's been a... It's about eight months. Eight months? Okay. Um, So just under a year, and you've already expanded to a few more designs, because I know it started very DIY, uh, and I want to hear the story behind this. What inspired you to create this, uh, uh, create this little clothing, this clothing brand, and what, uh, what, what's the story behind the name? I love the name. (laughs) Thank you. So it started uh, in D.C. I was a part of a program uh, called the Institute for Responsible Citizenship. It's a two-year intensive designed for young black men in um, in college. And I was there for two summers uh, working, interning um, in uh, various think tanks. And I met some of my best friends 
um, to this day from that program. And one day, you know, um, this last summer it was our, our our second summer, so we had a little bit more freedom. We um, a couple of my boys, um, my, myself, my boy Azi, Justin, and Horacio. We went to this Black Joy Festival that was being held by um, the the DC chapters of the Black Youth Project and Black Lives Matter, and it was in Malcolm X Park, and it was it was just beautiful. Um, it was something that I really couldn't readily describe until I left. It was the it was it was what I envisioned like folks doing if like we actually we're free or when we actually get free i should say you know um my friends rebecca they were like at a drum circle there was there was like a huge drum circle on one end like everybody was just like you know just playing the drums uh, you can hear them for miles um on the other hand on the other side you know there was like grown folks playing double dutch and those little little um black girls you know playing hopscotch and doing chalk outlines um, there was like libations, there was uh, um, venerations to the ancestors, all these different things. And it was just like, yo, like this is, this is, this is a lot. And this is, there was really a lot for me to take in at that point. And my, me and my boys took a picture and we, I just captioned, I don't know where it came from. It just, it just captioned, I mean, like, you know, it was, this was like free Negro university class of like 2099, something like that. And you know, it came out of nowhere. I really don't know where it came from. But then um, a couple months later after we left, my boy said, like, yo, what are you doing with that whole, like, free Negro thing? I was like, what are you talking about? You know, remember we took that picture and, like, you captioned it. Like, you should probably do something with that. And I was like, all right, cool. So I went to the mall one day and I got I, I got a couple shirts from H and M. You know, don't judge me from from don't judge me for shopping at H and M. Hey, I I do it. I do it. <laughs> got a couple t shirts and I went to the Holyoke Mall and I asked um this I asked this dude to print me up like two free Negro shirts and he kind of looked at me and he's like, "What?" I was like, "Yo, I need like two. Sh- I need both of these shirts. I need them to say free Negro on them." I was like, "All right, cool. Like, give me this print and like do it." And I came back twenty minutes later and there it was. So I wore it, and I, you know, I wore it. I went to work, and like, I was like, yo, where'd you get that shirt, man? That's so cool, blah, 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 I was like, no, thanks, man. I appreciate it. It's dope. Um, um, I took a picture of it. I put it on social media. I was like, yo, that's dope. I like that shirt. And, um, again, somebody told me, like, yo, I want one. I want one, too. I was like, all right, fine. We'll do something. Um and then I went to I went to the art craft center at UMass, and they showed me how to make my own screens, um, so I can make them myself. I was like, Yo, well, I can't go back to Holyoke Mall and like buy all those shirts. That's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went to like I went to Target, like bought like a couple of those like gilded shirts. They showed me how to make the prints. I called up the guy from the the printing store. I was like, Look, what font did you make that shirt in? Like, I need it, and I started. I made some prints. And they showed me how to um, they showed me how to to screen print, and you know the rest is history, man. We've been doing it ever since. God, I remember I remember when you first posted the shirt too. Uh, I got a, the <laughs> biggest grin because I knew that it was coming from such a good place, and I was like, God. And hearing that story, like I got the biggest smile and almost teared up a little bit when you said, "When we're finally free," and I was like, God. 
damn it, I hate the systems that have been in place for so long <laughs> to yeah, make I, you have to feel that way. <laughs> I dig, man, I dig. Um, but, but I, but I, I love know. it. And you've developed so many more designs since. Yeah, no, I appreciate it. No, thank you, man. Uh, it definitely means a lot. So, um, right, so I, I, I did the Free Negro, I did the Free Negress, um, and the Free Negrex for um, N-E-G-R-X, uh, for those who are uh, gender non-conforming, um, mm-hmm. um, and so that those are kind of taken off. And then around the election, um, I was like, "Yo, like, I need a shirt that says fuck Trump, dude.' Like, that's I don't know what the fuck y'all doing, but like, this is what I need to wear on my oh. chest." Um, so, so what happened was I went to so so everything was being done by just my own money, the work, the, the money that I was making just from working two jobs. And, um, yeah, so everything's coming out of my own pocket. So I went to the, the, um, design center and I needed, cause you have to, you have to print transparencies. So that's how you, that's how you, um, uh, burn the design or burn the wording onto the screen. So, I've been, I've been going there for a little while now. They've been seeing me. They've seen my face. I've probably been in there a couple times a week, um, you know, trying to then come up with some more designs. And I go in there, and, like, there's this um, there's, there's this young woman behind the counter. And I said, and I know, and like we're we're chopping it up. We're talking. I was like, how you doing? Blah, 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 blah. I'm not even talking about the election. And so I need one more transparency, and I need, it, I need to say, like, fuck Trump in big letters. And she looked at me. <laughs> And I was like, she's like, are you serious? I'm like, do I look like, I'm like, do I look like I'm fucking joking? Like, I need that shit. Like, like the fuck? And so I'm, so I'm already at like a 9.9. So I'm like, this is just, this is all that I need to like take me over that edge. And then she was like, well, I don't feel comfortable doing that and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, she said, like, you need to ask somebody else to do it. And it just so happens that um, another guy um, in the store that I was cool with, he was like, yo, it's cool. Don't worry about it. Like, I'll do it for you. I'm like, all right, bet. So, you know, I paid them. They did it. And, like, the fuck Trump shirts were made uh, within the hour. And I was like, yo, that's the last thing that I needed that day was for you to tell me that you ain't going to make me my fucking fuck Trump friend. Ugh. I, and and when you posted that one, I was like, finally, I can wear one of your shirts. I, I contacted you almost <laughs> immediately. <laughs> I, rem- I remember that. I remember that. I was like, oh, I got to get Craig one. I got to get Craig one. Um, like, I went, I, I wear that shirt mostly when I'm running because uh, I live in a part, I live in Quincy and it's not the most progressive area, but I love I, wearing it here. I get a lot of frustration. Because yeah. <laughs> my, whole, my whole thing was like, I, I need to like get like something like you need, I got to get like, like, I was telling my friends like, yo, like this, this is this isn't this isn't too safe. I gotta start sending folks like, you know, like a baseball bat or like some kind of blunt instruments like to walk around with this shirt with because you don't know what's gonna happen. Oh, I'm you like, don't? I've I've been I've been yelled at for wearing it. Oh yeah, no. Nah, so I was saying like, watch when I get some more money, I'm gonna send I'm gonna send folks like a free pair of brass knuckles with every <laughs> fuck Trump shirt, dude. I'm <laughs> telling, man, I'm arm yourselves. <laughs> I'm telling you, you gotta arm yourself, man. You gotta okay. Arm. So what have you learned from starting your own clothing brand like this? What is, what's the hustle been like for you? The hustle's been great, man. Um, and again, like, you know, I know that we spoke a little bit about um, uh, earlier about, you know, turning something negative into positive. And like this, 
last year was like very hard for a lot of reasons, mental health wise, um, a lot of things. I think that it was um, partly because I wasn't taking care of myself. And so I, I was just convincing myself and other people that I'm fine when I'm not. And a lot of that um, can be traced back to, you know, there was a lot of, you know, trauma that I didn't address uh, when I, you know, when I um, experienced that like hate crime and things of that nature. So I definitely should have, you know, taken a time out and really like, you know, gotten my mind right. But I was like, no, you know, you know how toxic masculinity works. I'm fine. Fuck you. I can do it. Um, so I was really, yeah, that's exactly it. That is it. <laughs> you know, I was feeling a lot of that and it kind of just, yeah. And I think that if I had done it sooner, it could have just been like, you know, I just, you know, shift into a lower gear and then just take my time and then work myself back up because I didn't do it. Like I like literally like just hit the wall and, you know, I had to like take withdraw withdrawal from like a semester and I do a whole bunch of different things. I quit my job. Um, it was, it was hard. It was hard for a long time. Um, and that was something that, you know, you know, we, we, I know, you know, when we, when we do, Trauma, like, and you know, as folks who are involved in trauma-informed care, you know, folks who are following sometimes have to reach out and like grab a rock in order to like, you know, help start climbing back up. And like for me, Free Negro University was that rock. You know what I mean? It was something that I felt very strongly about. It something that came from my, you know, my struggle, like my trauma, and something that I felt could be accessible for a lot of folks to engage into a deeper conversation around a lot of things regarding like anti-blackness, regarding toxic masculinity, regarding, you know, anti-fascism. Um, so many different things um, could come out of these conversations, but we're not, but, and that's what I needed to do at that point to really help myself get better. Um, so that's why, that's why I take it so seriously because this shit like this shit like really saved my life. Um, so I learned that I learned that a lot. I learned a lot of things. Um, I follow Damon John. If you don't know who Damon John is, Damon John is the founder of FUBU, and he has a lot of these like different like um, podcasts. And he said that the easiest thing to sell somebody is is the truth, and that's something that I've been seeing. I was so worried about whether or not somebody would like this, whether or not it's just my friends just you know placating me, and they're just like trying to pity me or whatever but you know the response that i've been getting shows that like people are digging this and like people are digging this from a very genuine place and i'm not just interested in like selling t-shirts but you know the fact of the matter is like this all this is, is a business but this is also a business that is grounded in a lot of personal values for me and to see that folks are really gravitating toward um something that comes out of my truth is just really fulfilling for me and I, I feel like that is like the most apparent with uh, the way you market the, 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 the brand that you have, because the messages are just there. There's no like design around it. It is literally just words. And right. I think that that's what makes it so strong because it's you can't really argue with that like you're not trying to make it pretty you're not yeah. trying to like put some roses or flowers around it you're like no whiteness is exhausting fuck trump uh free ne like they're they're messages that are just supposed to stand out and i think that you're you're selling 
the people the truth yeah what you got so that's a that's a good level of authenticity that i think people have gravitated towards so um that's huge thank you thank you so much and again i I go back to what my mom said and i remember that well this is actually from my grandmother um you know she always told me that you know i'm not i'm only responsible or in terms of getting things out or expressing yourselves I'm not responsible for how you understand it. I'm responsible for how I say it. And I've internalized that by saying that, you know, of course you don't just go and say whatever, you know, what comes out of your mouth. Of course you, you want to be pointed with your words and pointed with your message, but to try to sugarcoat things, you're just, you're, you're, you're not achieving the ultimate goal is it? you know, the more that you try to dance around and vacillate around an issue, the more the the further uh, lost that person becomes in trying to receive it. So like I can't do anything but be a hundred percent and just you know in your face about what I'm trying to do because the things that we're trying to fight against we don't have time to try to like dance around and tiptoe around things. You know we gotta we gotta take this shit head on. You know what I mean? I mean, and you've you've given me good uh, a good place for transition because speaking of the systems we have to fight, we don't have time to not fight them. The, the education system, like many other systems, do you feel like it's been set up for black students to fail? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, it it is something that I think about often. I know a lot of my friends who are in the institute. Um, are in, are interested in moving into education. A lot of them are educators at this moment, and a lot of them are interested in how to we how do we excuse me counteract the effects of uh, you know how many hundreds of years of miseducation for black children, and you know and there's conflicting answers. There's a multitude of answers. There's no one strategy. But one thing that we can all agree on is that there, it is it is impossible to think that somebody who has their entire um, life revolving around your oppression, they're not going to teach you the things that you need in order to free yourself. So, with that being said, we need to be intentional about how do we craft our curricula how do we craft our programs how do we craft our workshops to understand that you know a lot of the things that we have internalized were not coincidence they were by design because we the systems that we are living in they are dependent on us swallowing those truths and believing them to be fact so how do we push against them you know what i'm saying oh for sure like it it we wouldn't need, uh, this is me thinking in a pie in the sky kind of world, we wouldn't necessarily need HBCUs if the education system weren't out to disenfranchise black people. Right. Like, those would have never have had to have been created. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and now we have, and people still think that the education system is, has been desegregated. And that's bullshit. Mm-hmm. It's complete right. bullshit. And I'm actually talking to a guy in a couple weeks um, who works in Georgia. I think it's Georgia. Um, 
or no, Louisiana. I'm going to be talking to him a little bit about like modern segregation in schools and the, the, the work that he's doing to like break that apart right now. And it blows my mind that we still have people in like the department of education or even just at universities at large who think that there's a segment of students that we don't need to really keep paying attention to, even though there was this whole thing, you know, in like the fifties and sixties that right. meant that we, we would make everyone feel equal in this country. <laughs> right. Absolutely. All right. Now is the time of the podcast where we get to listen to some music. And this week, our record label of the week is Counterintuitive Records, which is a Massachusetts-based record label that focuses on finding new underground talent to release their music on vinyl and CD, and even digitally. It's all over the place. Uh, they focus on finding hardworking young bands ranging in sounds from indie rock to emo and pop punk. Uh, the label has been around for just, just under two years and has already brought 12 albums to vinyl and five more to CD. And they have plans for at least three to four more vinyl releases and two more CDs, CD releases just this year. Wow, there's so much going on with this label right now, especially here in, in New England. Right now, we're going to play you a song from the band Sleeping Patterns. The song is called Rain Dance, and it comes off of their album called A Little Blood Never Hurt Anyone. Recently came out in June. I think it's a really great album. I've gone through it three or four times. It's a really good listen. You're going to get to hear uh, this song right now, and if you like what you hear, check out counterintuitiverecords.com, and you can get a lot more information, buy, buy some records, buy some CDs, and support some up-and-coming bands. So here we go with Rain Dance by Sleeping Patterns. Let me tell you about my life. I don't really have a life. I've been looking for that green grassy other side. You haven't found it yet, because God knows I'm not satisfied. Someone else. 
Alright, that was Sleeping Patterns. I hope you enjoyed that track. And now let's finish this conversation with Josh Odom. Going back to your time uh, as an undergrad at UMass Amherst, you became student trustee. Yes. And that's an elected position, correct? Yes, it is. Um, what was that experience like for you? I know that you were going hard for it. Um, and what did you learn during your encounters with administration from that position? So I ran, so I, I don't know if everybody knows, but I ran, actually ran unopposed for my seat. Um, and a lot of folks were asking like, yo, bro, like you won, dog. Like the position is yours. Why are you still doing all this shit? I'm like, well, because that's what, at least that's what I thought that, you know, elected officials do. Like there's sometimes, like there's oftentimes where like, or maybe if I know that the competition isn't, you know, that tight, that still doesn't mean that I can just like take a, take a back seat and like rest on my laurels and whatnot. You know, I do, I, I know that I have done a lot of things on this campus. I know a lot of folks know my name, but that still doesn't mean that I should, you know, somehow think that I'm, owed or you know i should i deserve this seat or i'm owed this seat or i'm just going to sit back and let this play out like no like i'm still gonna you know present my platform just as if i'm running against 10 other people so so that so that takes that takes you know the campaign season goes um you know i go to my first meeting about uh uh, for the trustees that I remember very specifically, the first one I went to, um, I was in DC, so I couldn't make the the um, the, the initial summer meeting. But the first one I went to was in Boston, and there were um, a number of administrators there. And one of the topics of discussion was Title IX around uh, athletics. And you know, as as well, at least a lot of us know, like Title IX in and of itself. Um, is a very deep issue and especially in college sports that can get even deeper. So, you know, a lot of, all of the athletic directors from the, the UMass colleges were there. Uh, we were talking, we were engaging. They were talking about like how much money they were giving to uh, women's programs as opposed to men's programs, scholarships, coaches, and gender equity amongst the coaching staff and, you know, important issues. Don't get me wrong. But I asked the question of, you know, a part of the conversation on Title IX also has to do with gender-based and, you know, intimate partner and sexual violence. So how are we engaging with our uh, athletes who are also part of this community to ensure they have the knowledge that they need to, you know, to not commit any of these, you know, not commit any of these crimes or not, you know, or not even just not to commit any of these crimes, but how do we educate our campus community, our young men, to be a part of the, sol the solution. And the answers that I received were very superficial, like, you know, we take the It's On Us pledge and that's about it. Like, all right, that's fine, but what else are we doing? You know, you know, a lot of these men are with their coaches. Um, I couldn't, I can't, I don't, I can't even, I don't even know the number, the amount of time they're with each other and with these coaches. We have this opportunity to talk about consent and masculinity and, you know, toxic masculinity and rape culture. And, you know, y'all are, y'all either are not interested in doing that or um, don't have the capacity to do so. And I'm, I more so think it's, it's more, more of the former rather than the latter. So like, it kind of showed me, 
and I use that example in 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 conversations with a lot of the dealings that I had to do with the board of trustees. It's like y'all. I know we all know you have the capacity to do certain things um, pertaining to like sanctuary campuses. They know like sanctuary campuses were were huge. Um, that was a huge issue um, during my during my tenure um, or during my term, I should say. Um, and it was just really about you know um, giving lip service to the students. And there was one there was one point that solidified this whole thing for me um there was the, the the november meeting of the board of trustees took place at umass amherst and a number of students asked me how to how do they get in front of the board of trustees to then to have their public comments be made and you know i i expressed to them like this is how you do it you know, you email this person, you email this person, and that's how you get onto the agenda. And they, and the board, and I, and I know for a fact at least 12 people um, submitted their names to be heard and to be added onto the agenda for, for, pu for public comment. Um, the chair um, decided that he was going to limit the number of students or number of publics, um, public comments to one person. So one wow. person out of 12 people, at least 12 people who were interested in speaking and having their voice heard, uh, were actually heard. So I think that, that was the, that was the, the kicker. I was like, all right, so this is how we're doing this now. You know, folks go through the proper channels and they are denied the right to speak. I was like, all right, cool. That's, that's, that's the way this works, I guess. Um, and after a while, it kind of, it kind of, it kind of illuminated, like, you know, I, I ran for trustee because I thought that I would be insulated from the pettiness of like student politics, but it's, you just, you just, the higher up you go, like we talked about before, the higher up you go, the farther away these people are from the student experience. Because, you know, like we said before, a lot of them haven't been in school for the better part of at least 30 years. You know, at that point, they could probably pay for school by working a job or two over the summer. Um, and they swear that they're listening to students because they have the five of us on this, this board when only two of us have voting power at a time, and there's over over seventy thousand students represented in this system. So, I don't really know how you can think that you are then really taking into consideration all of the issues when you only, you really only have two members of this body that can actually vote. So, two people to represent seventy thousand people. Yeah, you do the math. When there are what five trustees too, so five trustees, yes. And it's kind of and they alternate every year. Like have yep. working at UMass Boston, I understand that they alternate every year, yep. and so it's kind of a a luck kind of thing if you get elected a year where you have the vote. Right. Like it alternates every year by university, not by student. It doesn't alternate each meeting by student. So each year, a different university's student gets to represent right it's so bizarre to me yeah um, yeah even working in the system it's something that like i have 
uh, a number of questions about all the time. Uh, but I feel like like you and I had a similar experience learning from administrators or learning the kind of the reality of how higher education functions. Uh, in my undergrad, I was a student body president at Oregon State, and I didn't know a whole lot about how that how higher ed worked. Um, my I, I, I was also known from like grassroots activism, but also from. Um, concert planning at Oregon State. I did a whole bunch of that. And so when I transitioned to working with administrators, I would realize that we'd go to these meetings with these people in suits that didn't really seem to know what was actually going on with the students. And anytime I like raised my hand, it almost like sent them into a moment of shock. Like, what is, what is he doing? Right. He's is he going to ask a question? And I right. would I would question all of them. And I would bring up all sorts of things that the students are feeling and experiencing. And it I tried to like shift the culture of how they interacted with students. And Ooh. again, definitely a function of my privilege um being being this white dude, but I definitely I felt heard at least, but I I definitely felt the same um uh, stuffiness and I guess lack of desire to move forward with anything that was discussed. Right. So we would have these discussions. You'd be like, all right, cool. So something's going to happen. No. Okay. All right. Tight. What yeah. do we do this for? <laughs> yeah. I just, uh, I don't even know. And it also is more so also it's, 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 it just sucks because you know you don't want to you don't want to not be involved, but like you and I both know like, we were incredibly involved on campus. And even if, like even when we weren't even if we weren't involved on campus, like this isn't this isn't my job. You know what I'm saying? Like I'm mm-hmm. here to like be a student. I'm here to like get good grades. And I'm sure that like anybody who's was involved can tell you like, I could have walked out of college with a three point eight or three point nine had I just like put some blinders on and chosen not to like be a part of this. But like we do this because we want to be involved in the process. But then when you realize the process is has been the process for fifty years and we have just we're just spinning our wheels. Um it it, it, it really became it really it was illuminated uh to me um right after everything popped off on campus my sophomore year. We actually found a document um, from the New Africa House takeover when, um, where the new, when the New Africa House was created um, in, ni- in the 1960s, and we found the list of demands that the black students written up, and they were, it was, it was almost exactly identical to the, our list of demands that we presented to the administration um, in 2015. So I'm like. At this point, it's like I'm like, what the fuck are we supposed to do, yo? Like, fifty years have passed. Like, a number of like strategic plans have like come and gone. Like, everybody thought that they were on the cutting edge of something great. So I'm like, dude. Like, after a while, I was like, you know, what can you do? Because at the end of the day, like this institution, if the institution wanted to move, it would move. But like, this is the function of a lot of these 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 committees, these boards, these planning committees, like their, their job is to, is to curtail progress, you know, and as mm-hmm. fucked up as it may sound and as, 
as bitter and jaded as I might may sound, like that is some that is something that I had to learn. Like you know, a lot of the things that I've learned, a lot of the the, the real impact that I've been able to do, it wasn't sitting in you know Whitmore, you know, going over um, uh, any kind of strategic plan. It was you know talking to students. It was you know building with my friends, doing things that really made admin uncomfortable. You know, so that would that was my experience and i think that should be something that is explored a little bit more and i i challenge um and i I really challenge a lot of my friends who are younger than me to that are getting involved like you know remember that this 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 building of these admin aren't going to save us you know what i'm saying like we really need to um rethink a lot of the things we've been doing in terms of organizing and I, I commend you for it and I think that you're doing you know work that not everybody will be be willing to do but this step this definitely needs to be something that we have to discuss around like what, what is the efficacy behind a lot of these initiatives and boards and committees damn like you're I I could echo literally everything you just said but I'm not going to um but knowing that the audience for this um knowing the audience for this podcast is mostly educators, I think you've just given a really good um, framework for how a lot of them who might work on some of those committees can like reconsider when they bring students in. Are we bringing students in to be collaborators, like active collaborators, or are we just bringing them in to make our numbers look good or to say we had a student in this meeting so we can like, cause trust me, I'm in those meetings too. And I'm in meetings without students. Right. And even when they get brought in, nothing like we don't even welcome their voices. And right. it's frustrating to me. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So Absolutely. moving into uh, this last question, Using all of that experience, using all of kind of what you just said, um, where do we go in terms of like really supporting black students during their college experience? And especially how can non-white educators like myself, uh, who works at a, a, a predominantly student of color university, um, how can we put those needs at the center of our work? And you it's a big me. question. The yeah. last question is always the heaviest. <laughs> yeah. Um, I read an article um, from, um, I think it was Inside Higher Ed a couple of months ago. It was, um, uh, forget the I forget the person's name, but um, essentially it was speaking to the the fact that the uni- oh, I remember it was there was a, there was a professor that spoke about the university as the plantation. That was the word that he used, and there was a whole bunch of uproar around like, how could you use that? That is so a historical blah blah blah. And the point that he was trying to make is that like the university itself is not necessarily racist. The university is an is a manifestation of racism. The fact of the matter is that, you know, this this whole phenomenon of like black students and other students of color like coming to at least at least in the United States, um, this this I this this um this phenomenon is of of, of black students, you know, going to college in like high numbers is fairly a new phenomenon. Like, you know, up until like, you know, the nineteen sixties or so, like, you know, the university was a white boys club. 
And that is something that, you know, educators need to be aware of. Like this, these institutions have a, have had a very, um, insidious purpose in many of, uh, our, um, and many of the, 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 the functions of our side. And like, one of those, one of those, one of those functions is to maintain like the status quo of, you know, of, of white, of white, the white supremacist structure. And if we don't recognize that, if we don't recognize that, you know, these institutions have a long history of anti-black violence, these institutions have a long history of racism, it, it, you know, these, even in, even in the, the slave trade, there, there was another article that was published a good, a couple, um, a couple of months ago in which a Georgetown employee found out that one of the, um, one of the, uh, the officials of that university sold his grandparents or not great, 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 great grandparents or sold his ancestors to into slavery in order to pay off some of the, um, the, um, the debts to the university. So once we understand that, once we accept that and act as if and stop acting as if all of these different things that are happening on our universities are just fringe incidents, they're not fringe incidents. They're not just outliers. These are at the fabric of a lot of our institutions of quote unquote higher learning. Who are these institutions designed to educate and why were these institutions uh, so exclusive for a particular um, uh, type of student. And oftentimes when that student uh, went to the door, they didn't look like me, you know? And as we embrace these things and as we move forward, and as we, you know, continue to tackle the question of how do we um, move, how do we work toward, uh, a, you know, a just and equitable society, like that is something that we have to keep in mind. Like these institutions have, a long history of participating explicitly in these acts and not many have ever tried to rectify those wounds. So as educators, we do need to take our part in terms of um, getting this university to getting, getting this and other universities to, um, to address it as, as you know, at, at, at bare minimum and take the steps necessary to, uh, enact real institutional change to help change the trajectory of these colleges and institutions of higher learning. Yeah. And I think just to add one little thing to what you're saying, um, just truly for administrators to listen mm -hmm. and to take people seriously yeah. when they come up with these sorts of, um, concerns or even demands, mm -hmm. um, because I, I definitely get frustrated when I hear some admin, like, kind of shrug off issues that students are having. And I'm like, no, they came to you. Listen to them. Mm -hmm. Come on. No, uh, absolutely. absolutely. All right. Here we go. We're going to wrap this up with a lightning round. All right, let's do it. All right. Here we go. So, lightning round. Some lighter things to end us off, uh, okay. end this conversation with. Okay. Favorite food? Uh, B-Pay. What was that? Beef patties, Jamaican beef patties. Oh, Jamaican beef patties. Okay. Favorite uh, book, current and all time? Uh, current, 
current uh this non-violent stuff will get you killed by charles cobb um all time uh the bluest eye turning Morrison. all right favorite movie current in all time favorite movie current all time uh damn uh favorite movie um favorite movie is the spook who sat by the door was that all time did you have yep. a current one current and all time yep oh current and all time dang dude all right weirdest hobby weirdest hobby um like people might not expect that you are interested in or oh you uh, do. wrestling i'm a huge wrestling fan all right because that leads into my next one what favorite pro wrestler current and all time <laughs> i knew I, I was hoping we'd get to it <laughs> um current um shinsuke nakamura Oh, he's the best. All time, uh, I'd have to say Ric Flair. Ric Flair. The style and him profiling? Oh yeah, of course. You already know. Do you think they're gonna you do you think they're gonna ruin Nakamura? Do you think they'll figure him out? I don't. I I, I think I think they're gonna mess him up. Like I it's it sucks because like they just I mean, they don't really know what to do with wrestlers from Japan, period. No. Uh, so like, I thought they're going to like book him as like this monster from Japan, but I guess they're not doing that. But hopefully we can get some like, at least. Hopefully we can get some good like dream matches out of that. Like I'm still hoping to do like the AJ Styles Nakamura thing. Oh yeah. Yeah, but yeah, I'm not holding my breath for anything huge. Yeah, it's kind of the same frustration I've been having with uh, Sami Zayn. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, we'll see. And the the best thing about Zayn though is that he's young, so. Yeah. He's like my age, so he still has years yes, to do uh, some fun. All right. Uh, favorite anime? Favorite anime? Um, Lupin the Third. Actually, I'll take that back. Cowboy Bebop. Cowboy. Oh, I just finished Bebop. Oh, I got to get back into it. I just finished it. Oh, boy. I, uh, I, I, I definitely enjoyed the hell out of that. Like, I literally finished it on, like, Tuesday. Okay. Now we're going to end on some music. Favorite album or artist of all time? Favorite album or artist of all time? Um, favorite, my favorite artist is MF oh, Doom. Oh, sick. Favorite album? Uh, man. It would have to be... It would have to be the low end theory by Tribe. Oh, there we go. What did you think of uh, the newest one, the one from last year? Oh, it was lit. I did. I definitely dig it. Oh man, it, I I dig it because it kind of like had some like doom mm-hmm. feel to it. Um, but no, it, it came was out awesome. of nowhere too. Like I, when when they yeah. announced it, people were like, the internet exploded. I think at one point. <laughs> um, if I, I oh man, all right. It, it, Favorite album would have to be a tie between um, the Low End Theory and uh, De La Soul's Three Feet High. Mm. There we go. We'll add that one. Yeah. Nice. Well, sweet man. Uh, thank you so much for taking some time to chat with me. This was great. No, awesome. Uh, I cannot wait to see what you do next. I'm gonna have my eye on you. But yeah, I don't know if you have anything else to say. How can folks get in touch with you? Uh, and like social and stuff hit me on instagram free nigger university all one word 
Um, that's where everything's at right now, where the website is coming soon. Um, so folks can begin to purchase um, some more stuff. We're, we're trying to get the Shopify going so they can have more of a variety in terms of like buttons and t-shirt, uh, you know, t-shirts and like mugs and stuff like that. So, you know, we're going to do some things. So stay tuned. Dude, I'm excited. Thank you so much. I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you, man. Appreciate you. All right. That's the end of the conversation. We did it. We did it again. Thank you again for listening to this episode of the Edge of Punks podcast. It was uh, a lot to cram into just over an hour with Josh, but I'm really thankful that he spent the time to chat with me, uh, t- taking a little break from his summer graduate school studies. Um, if you want to stay in touch with him, definitely follow him on social media. He's always posting uh like minute long video blog, mini episodes. He has a lot of knowledge to spit on that Instagram account. So definitely give him a follow. And if you liked what you heard, give us a follow on Instagram at edupunkspod. Same on Twitter at E-D-U-P-U-N-X pod. Give us a rating, a review on the iTunes app subscribe, share it with your friends, tell other educators that there's some cool conversations happening here. I'd really appreciate it. And if you want to check out more from Counterintuitive Records, go to counterintuitiverecords.com or find them on any number of social media. You can actually get it through their website. And check out Table Turned, table-turned.com and subscribe to their monthly vinyl subscription. There's a lot of great music you can get from them. So give Table Turned a chance. I think they're great. They're already sending out a lot of great tunes, a lot of great variants. Get some music in your ears. All right. That's it for this uh, this week's episode. I'll be back next Tuesday with another chat. Until then, I'll see you later. Let's get to work. Call the police. I'm strapped to the